The subject for the <coughs> evening talk is the wisdom of renunciation. Sometimes through various ways and means we have been... Could you turn down the uh, sound of the message? Thanks. We have been encouraged to believe that whatever we want in life is accessible and available to us. <coughs> we have been given a very <coughs> strong message that we are an individual, and as an individual, we are deserving of a multiple number of choices. We are living in a society which is obsessed with the ideology of choice. And we see that there is a vast and pervasive industry which seems to be determined to make every effort to satisfy our every whim in every conceivable form that is available to us through our eyes, through our ears, through our nose, through our tongue, and through touch. And every year we notice this proliferation of further and further diversity, further and further production, all as a, some kind of attempt to meet and satisfy each and every need. And whatever we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch, we seems to be such that the market forces are considerably at work, and we live and believe in the notion which has been given to us, which we have adopted, of freedom of choice. And sometimes we have looked at this very bluntly and very directly and say, is it freedom of choice? Or, or have we simply submitted ourselves to the forms of uh, persuasion? And therefore we are simply pulled not a matter of choice, but we are pulled into taking one thing or we are pulled into taking something else and we are living to all intents and purposes like puppets on the string of market forces. And sometimes we have noticed this when we have gone into the shopping malls, when we have gone into the supermarkets and we have just stopped and we have just wondered, where did the decision emerge from that made me choose this colour over that colour, this item over that item? Where, where is the impact of all of that coming from? And we see too that in our experience through uh, each of these five sense doors that there is a kind of magnetic pull and sometimes that magnetic pull is such that it highlights and it accelerates the concept, the idea, the belief of choices. This shows itself in our day-to-day -day experience 
when in the highlighting, in the exaggerated belief in forces, that, in choices, that when there is some collision of them, the consequence is of collision is confusion. The confusion of choices. And at times we see people going out on the, on the shopping spree, going to the shops, which is the main form of social activity in our society. When there was a poll in, uh, in uh, this country and uh, young women in this case were asked, what, what activity do they like doing best? More than 90% said going shopping. So there's the market forces organizing itself in very magnetic and persuasive ways, pulling us, and we deceive ourselves into believing of choices. And instead of addictions, preoccupations, and the frequent collision of choices, and the clash that it makes, and the consequent confusion, and sometimes we have seen in ourselves and other people uh, running around, dashing around from one shop to another, obsessed with a particular idea of the item that he or she wants. This is a, a prisoner to choices, the mind fixed in a particular way. It can't break out of the mold. This is a statement of materialism. This is materialism. It's not the material as such. It's materialism. It's the, the religion of our culture and the religion with the, the church as the supermarket. And since this is such a persuasive and potent impact on, our, on ourselves, sometimes we do feel the dissatisfaction in that. We do feel the, the agitations in, inside of us and we ask ourselves, how is it that I am in such a grind that I can be, be spending this X amount of money, that I can be going into debt in order to secure this, that and the other, and that I have to keep working, working, working to buy things which are supposed to be making my life easier, but it's making my life harder because of the degree of work that I have to do, the degree of study which I have to do, the degree of competing with other human beings, which I have to do if I'm going to survive in this world. All this is part of the ideological uh, framework in which we, which we live. And it's a tragic statement, not only, of course, upon ourselves and what has become of us, but all, also it's equally a, a tragic statement on, on, the, on the fate of the earth it, itself. So I say, spiritual life, practices, ethical considerations, just as we are here in a certain simplicity, a certain wisdom of renunciation, the, the spirit of that, the, the livingness of that, surely must be and needs to be found when, the, when we step foot inside the supermarket, whenever we go to the, the shopping mall or, or whatever. And one of the characteristics of th that, as I say, is that the persuasive powers, as I say, like a magnetic force 
on consciousness. It pulls consciousness in under the belief of choice. But in the pulling of consciousness which takes place, that sometimes we notice in the buying, in the thoughts that arise during a retreat that of when I leave here I must remember to get, I really do need, I must buy. When that, the, the production line, the internalized one, is taking place, how easy it is to go into these places, I nearly said dens of iniquity, <laughs> to go into these kind of uh, situations and the proof, the one of the yardsticks and indicators that consciousness has been yanked from its grounding, pulled out of its center, is when we find ourselves paying for or buying more than, we, than is actually necessity, than, than is a necessity. Then we know we are a living with the mentality of fishes. <laughs> The line has been thrown, <laughs> the bait's on the end of the hook, and we have taken it hook, line, and sinker, and away we go, still garbling on about freedom of choice. <laughs> so in this situation in life, in the, in the world of materialism and, uh, and our relationship to that, sometimes we have said, let me look at this, let me really stop in my life and, and let me really consider those items which are available to us in this world through which I see, hear, smell, taste and touch. Let me reflect on this, let me apply without the pressure some discernment to this and let, let there be some wisdom here and if there is to be some wisdom here it couldn't be separate for, for us from the wisdom of renunciation. Instead of learning and being conditioned to have, can I discover what it means to bring into our life a certain flow of simplicity of things? Just re recently I had the uh, delight and the privilege of visiting my two teachers. One is uh, and Ajahn Damodaro and the other is Ajahn Buddhadasa, two teachers. And Tanajan Damodaro is the abbot of a uh, now a very large uh, monastery uh, of some uh, during the uh, rains retreat period of the year the, when the monks and the nuns are engaged in a kind of three month uh, retreat there. there will be four or five hundred monks and nuns uh, in, in the monastery on the retreat. And other times of the year it is usually two to three hundred as monks and nuns like to uh, go walking to Dong as it is called. While there I went to visit the monastery where he was previously and where I had the delight of, not always a delight, spending uh, three, <laughs> three or four uh, years in the beginning of the 1970s and while there I went, uh, spent some days there and I made contact and visited a dear friend of mine, a nun called Mechi Patomwan. Mechi Patomwan was ordained initially when she was 12 years of age for a seven day period. 
taking on the white robes, taking on uh, the precepts or renunciation, and the shaving of the head and going into the monastic life. As I say, initially it was for seven days, and this is a common tradition, as some of you know, in uh, Thailand and some other Buddhist countries, as a way of paying respect to the family, paying respect to the Dharma and the Buddha, and to experience a period of time in a person's life of renunciation, of doing without. After seven days, she told her parents that she didn't, in fact, wish to disrobe and stayed on. They endeavoured to persuade her again and again, and now she and I are the same age, 48 years of age, and uh, her mother is now a nun in the same monastery. <laughs> Perhaps there's hope for hours, we'll see. And, <coughs> and while, I, while I was there uh, visiting her, and she is now the head nun of the uh, pro province, she's a very wonderful uh, human being, uh, human being who I regard as a, a saint and very delightful and extremely beautiful woman. And while I was there, I asked her, after now she spent 31 years in the same monastery, whether she would like to come to see how to England, to see how the Dharma and the, the, the teachings has been being established in the uh, Western paradise. And she said yes, but in a kind of rather typical, polite yes of the Thais. And one never knows if yes is yes or no is no or something else. So a few days later, after we had traveled actually a 17-hour car uh, journey with uh, another monk, an abbot, and a chauffeur and things, I asked her again. And I said to her, look, I'm serious. If you would like to come, I'm sure it can be organized and arranged. And she said, yes, and I'm serious, I will come. And so uh, through the very kind generosity of a person who was sitting the retreat here in April and some other friends who gave some donations as well, we, we were able to bring her to uh, England. And this is a person whose possessions she could hold easily and effortlessly in the palm of one hand. <laughs> and when we, we brought, brought, brought her there, it was extraordinarily feeling for um, my, myself in so far as I found myself in taking her around from the moment we picked her up in the airport, kind of looking through our society, through her eyes. She's never traveled, she's never been out of the country, never been on an aeroplane, She's never been in a, in a restaurant before, etc., etc., etc. All a completely new world. And sometimes I wondered if I was on England or on Mars. It, 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 <laughs> it helped me realize what a bizarre society we have generated be between us. And in, in, in that, through the period of time that she was there staying in monasteries, staying in our centers, so experiencing the religious forms and the more traditional classical mode and also experiencing with us 
with ourselves, who are teaching the Dharma without the religious forms, so to speak, to, for her to experience all of that. In some of the dialogues and questions that she was asked, one of the questions, and for some it certainly becomes a very uh, important and serious question, and one of the questions she was asked, don't you think it's necessary to become, uh, to take ordination? Isn't the chance and the opportunity for liberation in life only, ava only available if one is really willing to renounce in, the, in, the, in that classical way of becoming a monk or becoming a nun? And her response to this was, she said, when a person is a lay person, a lay, a lay person wears different colored clothes at different times. When they give up that, that person then wears a single color. Might be brown or ochre or, or white or whatever. And she said, that also has to be given up as well. That also has to be renounced. All is for renunciation. And therefore, being a lay person or being a monk or a nun, when it comes to the, the, the bare-boned truth of things, the wisdom of renunciation is such that it all goes. In her speaking and in the time that Patomwan spent in the, uh, the country, which for, was for a two-month period, we, through the discussions and meetings with her, had a number of uh, interesting observations and perceptions for her. She was asked, of course, she said, she was asked, what about women's liberation? Remember, this is a person who's been in a Buddhist monastery 31 years. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, oh, God, you know. <laughs> <laughs> because I was, I was a little bit uh, cons um, concerned that uh, there may come a kind of um, orthodox, you know, uh, uh, answer and, and some of those unfortunate uh, differences which do exist in monasticism, in uh, differences in the disciplines between uh, men and women. I felt it's uncomfortable, probably a rather similar feeling, I understand, from those who a couple have mentioned this to me, who have been listening to their partner during the inquiry period. And while listening to the partner, there is some identification with what the partner is saying. Oh, God, no, it's so embarrassing, <laughs> like, like this. <laughs> and that he or she, oh, I sound so confused. I'm not going to let anybody know I'm in a relationship. <laughs> 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 so all of, all of these things, so a little bit, at least, I'm not in a relationship with her, but anyway, <laughs> or not that form. And uh, in the moment, just feeling some uncomfort. And, then, and when she was asked about liberation, she, and she said, without battering a, a, a lie, uh, uh, an eyelid, she said, uh, there is um, no such thing as women's liberation. She said, women, uh, she said, liberation doesn't belong to men or women. Liberation is liberation. It has no gender in it. <laughs> that brought unanimous stillness. <laughs> 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 so.
So in the period of time that uh, Patom uh, uh was there, it, it, the, the theme of renunciation kept striking uh, to me to me a great deal as a householder, of course, as as a parent, and and what that meant in my life. So sometimes we we look at our relationship to the world of the material world. We look at and we and we see and examine with care, hopefully, our home situation. And in our home, for those who use and have a home, in our home, what is practical, what is useful, what has some necessity and value to it in those ways. And also what is artistic, what is, what is creative, and also there as a product of one's home. Nevertheless, in all of that, as it were, the utensils and the artistic, which are probably features of most, if not all, of our homes and the value of that. But what is the relationship to it? What is the relationship? What's the degree of I and my which accompanies all of that? And sometimes uh, the I and my can show itself in many, many ways. Of course, one of them is, is fear of loss. Fear of loss. Fear of being destroyed. Fear of being stolen. And all, and all of that. And, and that also shows, there was just as an example, rather vivid and extremely graphic, which has a kind of slightly humorous side to it, but, but uh, you know, basically a rather uh, sad one, that some very, very wealthy people uh, earlier this year in Britain who owned a very uh, large country mansion went uh, away on an extended holiday and this large country mansion that when they arrived home there was nothing, nothing, nothing left. <laughs> it had been cleaned. So, so much cleaned that every single item from the carpets to the curtains to the flower pots had gone. Not only that, they had even, the thieves had even taken out the fireplaces and the stairs. <laughs> nothing was left. They, they opened the front door and there was not a single personal item left in the house. Can you imagine after a holiday? <laughs> cleaned, cleaned, gone to the cleaners as they say in England. And so sometimes situations like, like that, sometimes one might say renunciation is forced. <laughs> so it's sometimes in our society it doesn't pay to gather too much because of the fears and the identifications and the insurances, etc., etc. Looking into the material world and looking into the, re the relationship to, to that. How much is our life not only invested, of course, with what is, but also the investment in the eye also keeps revealing dissatisfaction and therefore the desire, the wish for more and more and more and more. And, and these days where there is the accumulation of more and more and more and more, it means proportionately less and less and less and less somewhere else. Can we live like this? Can we go on living like this? And so it becomes a, a, a consideration from the whole vision of things as well, but it also becomes a consideration too 
for as an act of our own being in this world, but even more importantly than the consideration for the have-nots, even more importantly than freeing ourselves from fear and identification with the material world, what does it stop? What is it holding up? What is it hindering for us? And it's not, as it were, what is happening in so much of what is gained? What's the price for what we gained? And one is told, of course, and we hear uh, immeasurably and, in, and with frequency, spiritual life, that something is there which is far greater. So it's a kind of the wish for something greater in the material world, in a way, is a human condition, of course. Some people say it's a natural human condition. And it is the human condition for something greater, for something better, for something bigger. And, and we, we, we sense that. And we sense that, therefore, if we uh, have a bigger salary, if we have a, a bigger apartment, if we have a, a, a newer car, if we have more, there is some movement that's going on. And the movement says, yes, there is available, there is access to something greater. And that, I think, has to be acknowledged. That needs to be recognized. But what spiritual life says, yes, but it's in the wrong direction. It's not the movement which is the tragedy itself towards something greater or bigger or better, but it's the direction it is being pulled into. And we're saying in spiritual life, the direction that it's poured into has to be arrested because this is the wrong way we're going. And therefore, the suffering consequences of going in the, in the wrong way have its consequences far and wide. Yes, let's go for what is greater. Let's go for what is bigger. Let's go for that which is immeasurable, which is infinite, which is indestructible, and therefore is the greatest, the best. Sometimes, if I just speak personally for a moment here, sometimes at, uh, at home, I live in uh, Totnes. It is a small town of about uh, 10,000 people. I've been living th there for the past 10 years. It uh, is uh, a major center in the country for alternative uh, activities, and they take a a wide variety of forms, and I am one of those there who is very much active in community life, community building. I touched very, very briefly on this yesterday evening in the, in, in the talk in terms of having a greater sense of, greater vision of what uh, family is, and therefore the love and the, and the care for those who are close to us and near to us in our local communities, both the friends and parents and children and neighbors and like-minded people, <laughs> and to really open that out so there's much more sharing and flow, a greater sense of what family means rather than this uh, introverted and alienated economic concept of family, to break down some of those old formations that we have gathered. And certainly living in Totnes and like a number of you as well, one has one's home, and in that home I have a number of 
uh, items which I use and relate to. And in that my uh, daughter, Nashona, who is uh, 11 years of age, is also there, of course, and also with her mum just a few minutes away. And sometimes the thought has uh, arisen and it rose quite, uh, I had some discussions about this uh, during the time of Paton Wan's visit, and that there is uh, the home and the duties, the responsibilities, the participation in that, and yet too there is the love of homelessness and I having the privilege for quite a few uh, years of living that way of life. Henrietta for several years now has been uh, leading a homeless life and a few times the thought has arisen for um, myself that when my daughter, probably seven or eight years or whenever if she does, uh, decide to uh, le le leave home, then her <laughs> Then, uh, then uh, the father's going into homelessness as well, and I will, uh, felt my home career has uh, reached its completion. And, and I think sometimes, and some of us, in our looking, in our perceiving, we see the convenience, and that is what it is really, a, a convenience of the home life, and a, and a usefulness, and as an anchor point from which we can work and and do those particular tasks that you and I have. But let's have a certain freedom with regard to. Let's be spacious around that so that we're not living in fear and also that the home itself is a place which is a place of kindness. It's a spiritual place. It's, it is a center for something. And thus, people who wish to come and be, be with us, no matter what the state of the home is, their home is as available as it can be for other people. It is an open house, an, op an open door, an open apartment to people in ways which we can make available. Thus, we're not living in excuses, we're not living in an enclosed system, and and there is that genuine sense of deep kindness and hospitality. All of that shows that there's a non-possessive kind of relationship to what we associate with in the material world. And, and I th all of that, I think, is belonging in a very effective and, and significant way to the wisdom of renunciation. Are we able to let go of the holding mind in these and many other kinds of ways. Similarly, when we look, as I say, if the, if the materialisms of this world has, has us in its grip, we are pulled out by it. And I remember my old uh, uh, teacher, Ajahn uh, Damodaro. He quite often, when people, as people do from morning, noon and night, come to meet and talk with him. Sometimes he would have, a, he had a small box uh, beside him on his uh, mat where he sat, and in the box there were a number of magnets. And he would build up uh, a magnet, and then he would build up another um, magnet or a piece, piece of metal. And he, and he described, he would use this as an illustration of what a free life 
is. And, it, and the free life, he says, the magnet can move, fr move freely and, and joyfully in and through things. But, he said, sometimes what takes place is the force of one magnet, the force of the, the other, and there's a point. And in that point, collision. In that point, a crashing can take place. And that experience, I think, not in terms of touch and closeness and intimacy, but the movement of the mind which out of contact takes hold of. Out of contact takes hold of. And this is what he was speaking of, of protesting. Can we be in contact with what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch, all the intimacies without holding, an unholding way of being in this world. Some, the, uh, as uh, uh, one of the people on the staff mentioned in the staff dining room just yesterday, she was speaking a little bit about her life and the comment, if I paraphrase a little bit here, the comment which was made by her was, I don't have any interest to, as it were, make it in the world, in the conventional sense, making money, getting a, a career, uh, or just trying to get uh, my life together in that kind of way, for which sometimes we have an exaggerated value for. Can there be a way of life in which one knows, honestly, one's life is not materialistically concerned, not of materialism. If that is so, that makes and generates for us a certain kind of space in life. What's, that's, what can help to nourish not only that space, but what creatively can generate through it? What is a, a creative life? We were talking about it in the inquiry which can come through that space because one is not a prisoner in this world of forms. And sometimes we have very deep questions to ask ourselves. Where is the creativity in my life? How, how does that show itself? Is my life going by in such a way that I'm just kind of living my life and my life appears to be like a succession of tasks which I'm trying to get completed. And sometimes a person feels the, the, the anguish of that, that life is just a succession of tasks of which one is trying to get them as completed as quickly as possible. And that somehow stifles something inside of us as human beings. We, we gain a, a strange relationship to time through that. And something delightful and expressive be begins to, to die upon us. Because we're losing something of which is creative. All of that, that, the thread of that, remember, without any spiritual forms for this, without any spiritual methods, without any particular meditations, without the use of any techniques, in a kind of very open way, looking at how life provides the opportunity for the fullness of liberation, for the fullness of an enlightened life, and wonders, 
doesn't even have to have sat for a minute cross-legged on the meditation cushion. Saves you all the knee pains, doesn't it? Wonderful. <laughs> it's just a matter of bringing the, our awareness to situations, to look at those situations and to take real care and time at looking at them in a very free way. In that, so that we can see those things where we sense we are attached, we know we are identified with, we know we are possessive about whatever it might be, that whatever it is, from the ring on the finger, to a long relationship, to living with a nice salary, or whatever it is, we can say, yes, I know I'm vulnerable in this area, if that suddenly changed on me. If something occurred, which just shattered that. And we've said, I'm just going to make time in my life to look at that very, very carefully, with wisdom, with the understanding I'm not in control of things, with the understanding that I don't, I'm not in the position of having choices every time I want something to happen. I feel the innocence of my existence. I feel the uncertainty of, of things. I'm not afraid to feel this innocence, this uncertainty. So let me look at that where there's some vulnerability. Let me just be aware of that. It may be a visualized awareness of that situation, that person. It may be looking at that particular object which one has had for years and years and years and generations or whatever. And one has looked at that with care and and looked in such a way to see what kind of relationship, what way can I feel this, experience this, and know this, and know there's no trace of possessiveness. No clinging over this. No holding onto this, because I've looked so carefully, and I know I don't want to live in that clinging, possessive way. So that we begin to taste of an altered perception a transformed perception, and we sense that the key that it keeps freeing us. And sometimes we know there's the small, small thing and a little change, and it sometimes it can upset us for days. Small, small little thing of life. And why? Because we, because we haven't really looked, haven't really observed it in a pure, innocent and simple way. All of that, as I say, lending itself, not to the renunciation of I must do without, not to a kind of enforced pressure on ourselves, but the renunciation which is allowing things to fall into place, and in that things have their own order. Sometimes too, in our relationship and in our observation, sometimes the material world falls away, but we become, if I may say, a little materialistic emotionally, emotional materialism, or intellectual materialism. And a, a similar, sometimes a similar kind of relationship can occur. Too much emphasis, too much exaggeration, too much thinking, I wish to be perfect. I wish to have it. That is my life, my mind states just as I wish them to be. Who on earth ever succeeded? 
Who on earth ever succeeded in that the self has the power and the control and the choice to make it perfect? Who? Nobody. Not from the Buddha all the way down through the line. Yet, the teachings themselves, the relationship to the teachings, do offer something which is transforming. If the relationship is offering something which is transforming, what does it mean to be wise with one's mind? To live with wisdom to one's whole life experience. And I think sometimes when you and I, when we stop and we ask ourselves, in a situation which involves our experience and it involves our mind, it involves our inner life, and we say to ourselves, what is it to be wise here? What is it to be wise in this circumstance? That if we really are attentive, I think that wisdom has an opportunity to shine through. It's not so much the experiences which are the problem which we keep proclaiming and keep, keep endorsing, it's the way we relate to these experiences. Somebody comes and says, sometimes, as somebody has said and many have said, when somebody is angry with me and really upset, I really feel a real tension in my stomach. Really feel a knot. I really feel it's painful and I just wonder, what can I do about this? How can I get, get rid of this, you know, every time somebody is angry with me? The very relating in this way, the very, how can I stop this? How can I get rid of this? I say is an impossible task. Impossible task. Situation where there's that kind of experience, of course there's an impact. And some are more susceptible because of the way the life is of the person to, say, negative impact. That impact can and does have an influence in a particular area. Certainly it's very unpleasant. Certainly it's an extremely unsatisfactory form of of experience there. But the very wish, the very description, the very desire to get rid of feeds it. And what happens is the self, the I, it shrinks and it contracts around that experience, around that particular sensation located in a particular part of the body and that is made to matter. Made to matter it is. When it's made, made to matter in that way, all that we can know is that particular locality. We can't see anything, we can't hear, we can't smell, we can't taste, we can't see any space anywhere. And we say it's because of the sensation. That unpleasant sensation and my w- uh, is the issue. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Even if one takes to consideration the whole of the body, it's just a small patch of it. Is it such a big deal, these unpleasant sensations? 
Haven't we observed enough in our back, in our knees, in up our nose and back of our head during these days? But we take one or two of them and we say, oh, I've got this one. This kind of sensation in this particular location is a definite problem. <laughs> and we, we implant it with a devastating authority. And then we think we have to do so much about it and it's going to require this and this and this. And we have forgotten completely. It's just a sensation which is unpleasant owing to impact. Can we just let that sensation be and acknowledge there's more to life than a little spot around the abdomen? That's all, just to acknowledge that. So that those unpleasantnesses, strongly unpleasant, yes, of course, strongly unpleasant, are strongly unpleasant experiences, but one's consciousness is not going to be tied, restricted, and defined by it. Because one has realized something that the more, and that realizing of something more is so obvious. Life can never be full of pain. It is not possible to fill life with pain. It's specific, it's localized, it's a particular area of sensation, even when the whole body has it. Nevertheless, the power of awareness is, the wisdom of renunciation will reveal again and again much more than that locality. Let's acknowledge it fully. That acknowledgement is our liberation. It's our awakening. It's our enlightenment. It's our, it's our freedom. It's, it's, it's that realization is what's sacred. So as I say, finally, in the material world, in the world of forms and practices, in the world of explorations, even in the world of renounce, of difficulties and sensations like the one that I just, just described there. Yet all of that, the whole flow of, of that, and all the yearning for something which is vast and great and big and uh, immeasurable is of such an order that all of that is accommodated. What is immeasurable is immeasurable. What is vast, which is the, the fulfillment of spiritual inquiry, is forever vast. Therefore, it embraces this material world, it embraces this uh, physical world, it embraces this emotional world, and all of our practices and teachers and teachings, and all of it, because it is the vast, it is the inexpressible. And therefore, that unpleasant sensation deep down in the stomach when somebody is angry with you or upset and you feel, feel that in a way, in a mysterious and mystical way, it's a revelation of something which is vast. It's a, it's a very, as, as one of the Christian uh, saints said so beautifully and exquisitely, God is revealed equally in hell as in heaven. And we touch on that and we feel the, 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 the breath of the sacred in our life. Then 
all things are gathered unto it. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings be touched by the sacred. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.